0: Matthew nine, and we're going to be one through eight this morning, uh, but we are going to be looking at a lot of other passages. I highly recommend to keep your Bible out. Uh, we're going to we're going to thumb through quite a bit of a scripture, especially in the beginning this morning. So, there are times when we take a sermon or a lesson, and there's really only one point, um, and that's just to gaze at Christ, to just look or see and savor who He is, and that's what this morning is. Kind of like um, looking at a, a, a diamond that has so many um, angles and facets that you can just look at it and turn it, see it in the light, see the different the the different beauty of it from this angle and that angle, from that light and this perspective. And this morning, um, that is what that's what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at Christ, but we're gonna look at Him through the angle, the perspective as king. Uh, But if you understand the Gospel of Matthew, you realize that that's what Matthew is trying to express to you as you read the Gospel that he has written. Um, If you could summarize the Gospel of Matthew very quickly, it would be Jesus is king and his kingdom is at hand. Jesus is king and his kingdom is at hand. And if you look at Matthew from the beginning, you pick up on it pretty quickly. He begins with this genealogy, and it's just not letting us know who Jesus' ancestry is, but it's letting us know that Jesus comes from a royal line. This is a royal genealogy. It begins by stating that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Just the fact that it proclaims that Jesus is Christ says to us that he is a king. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is a royal family tree. He is shown in Matthew that he sits upon the throne of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Now, for Gentiles like you and I, that might take a little bit of understanding. We might, might not get as excited as when we read gene- this genealogy or read through the Gospel of Matthew about a kingdom and a king uh, as the Jews would when they read this. Because you have to understand, they have been waiting for this king and this kingdom. They had been waiting since Genesis. Uh, and to be... For, the, for the, the Gospel of Matthew to declare in the very first verse, as we've looked at before, that, th- that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. They are excited to know that the kingdom is at hand and the kingdom is here. Now, there are a few verses I want to set up and show us. Again, it's just a little bit of a Bible study before we get going into Matthew 9 to help you understand why the Jews would be so excited. And then I want to show you a few verses of why I think you and I, outside of Israel, should be excited about this coming kingdom as well. Start with me in Genesis 12. These verses we're going to look at are well known, but I want you to see them in the perspective of a first century Jew awaiting, awaiting the arrival of not just a king, but the king. The kingdom of the the king of the kingdom of God. Genesis twelve one through three. It begins with God revealing Himself to Abraham, who was Abram at the time. Genesis twelve one. Now the Lord said to Abram, "Go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation." He's going to make of Abram a great nation. And he says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Continue over into verse or chapter 15. A little bit more begins to get revealed of this nation. That is to be built through this one man. One, uh, verse 1 of chapter 15. After these things, the word, of, uh, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Verse 4 This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So not only is God going to make a great nation through Abraham, but it sounds like he's going to build a kingdom. Through Abraham, and not just Abraham, but through his offspring. For it will number as the stars number the sky. Now go to chapter 17. Verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you, your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. One more in Genesis chapter 22 verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham Abraham a second time from heaven, verse 16, and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemy, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed now as we go I'll make our way back to Matthew stop at Second Samuel so just a little bit to your right past Deuteronomy past Joshua past Judges get to Second Samuel And here we see in chapter 7 of Second Samuel a similar statement by God to a son of Abraham. As God speaks to David, Second Samuel chapter 7 verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now here's the thing. That is excitement to a Jew. That is a promise to Abraham, to his offspring, to David, and his son and his offspring. And this is what the Jews, Israel, This is what they were waiting for, an eternal kingdom. Now, again, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, I'm still not very excited because I'm outside of Israel. I'm not a Jew. What does this have to do with me? There's an eternal kingdom? Okay, that's great. But it doesn't spark much in a Gentile. Now, what kind of king or what kind of kingdom might get your attention? It would be a kingdom that we read out of Daniel earlier. Not just a king or a kingdom that is eternal, but one that is to smash the rest of the kingdoms under his foot. A king and a kingdom that comes and will break to pieces every kingdom of this earth. That is the type of kingdom that would get our attention. One that is eternal and one that is in authority and dominion over all things because we can find ourselves we do find ourselves under that dominion and that rule now let me read some I, well, i'm not going to read daniel 2 again for you the full thing but just hang hang wherever you are make your way back to matthew and let me remind you of this kingdom that was coming that was dreamed of In King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and in those days, the days of the kings of the of the kingdoms of the earth, the the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Now, he also speaks in Daniel of the king that will come with this kingdom. And he says in Daniel 7 I saw in the night's vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Hang on to that phrase, son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, he came to God and was presented before Him. And to Him, this one like the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High." His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. What were the wise men looking for in Matthew chapter 2? A king. What did John the Baptist declare that he was preparing a way for? A king. A king. Jesus came forth after the declaration of John the Baptist as John had prepared the way for the Lord. Jesus was sort of given a public coronation as he was baptized. And the, and the Lord, the Father, declared from the heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And then in Matthew 4, Jesus is tested by his enemy, Satan. He overcomes, he conquers Satan. And then you know the first thing that Jesus begins to say after his coronation and after his temptation? The kingdom is here. The kingdom has come. This kingdom that they had waited for from Genesis to Second Samuel, that was dreamed of by Nebuchadnezzar as Christ came, as the king came, So the kingdom came. And Jesus declares, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Now, what sets a king apart from common people? Authority, rule, power. That's where we get to Matthew 9 today. We see, well, we've actually seen it through the end of Matthew 7, all through Matthew 8, and now into Matthew 9, that Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth, has authority. I've harped on this every Sunday since we've ended Matthew 7 and been back in Matthew 8. How did they identify Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? One who spoke with authority. Why? Because He is the King. And then Matthew 8, it's not just that he teaches with authority, but that with his word he declares and commands, and with his power and authority overcomes leprosy. He heals the the centurion's servant. He removes the fever of Peter's mother. He crosses a stormy A stormy sea and rebukes the wind and the waves and causes them to stand still he approaches the demonic and runs it off a cliff, sends it where he wills this is a king exercising his authority his rule, his power and then we get to chapter 9 and we see his authority his rule and his power exercised again Look at Matthew 9. Let me read the eight verses here. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. who had given such authority to men. Now, let's talk about this for just a second. As we look at chapter or verse 1 of chapter 9, Jesus gets into the boat. He's going to cross back over, come over to his own city, uh, more than likely Capernaum. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic. Now we've seen Jesus and his authority over the body of healing. We've, se- we've seen that all through chapter 8. And they bring to him a man lying on the bed, paralytic, kids, he can't use his, his arms and his legs, Okay, but his friends bring him to Jesus, and Jesus saw their faith because they wanted what? his fr- Their friend to be healed. They wanted their friend to be able to walk and use his arms and his legs. But Jesus does something different. Look what he says in verse 2. He saw their faith. When when he saw that, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now this this isn't what they were after. This is not what they asked for. And if you're, if you're a student of the Scriptures and you, you've studied Jesus and His ministry, you understand that Jesus will do something or say something that you're not expecting, not to throw you off, but to show you something, typically. To prove something to you. To make a point. So if you're reading your Bible and you think, well, why did Jesus do that? I wasn't expecting that. Pay attention. He probably wants you to know something. And then verse 3 it says, and behold, some of the scribes said to him, this man is blaspheming. Okay, so we got what's blaspheming? Well, simply it's just to speak against God, to slander God, to insult God. And it could be done in many different forms. Well, why would they charge Jesus as slandering and, or insulting God when he just said, your sins are forgiven? Well, Luke is helpful here. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, he gives us a little bit more detail about their thoughts and words. That would be the scribes who responded to or were sort of thinking and murmuring amongst themselves when Jesus said that this man's sins were forgiven. This is what, how Luke records it. Who is this who speaks blasphemy? And then this is what's added. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So in other words, they're saying, you slander God by claiming to be able to act on the same level as God. You act as one who has the authority of God. What's the problem? Well, they're looking at this man and says, you're not God. You're obviously a man. So you are blaspheming, you are insulting, bringing God down, exalting yourself to His level. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts in verse 4, says, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Now that had to be an infuriating statement to them. Because consider what they are doing. They're attempting to defend the name and honor of God by condemning His blasphemy. Right, They're standing for the sake of God, calling him a blasphemer, and he turns it around and says, no, you speak evil. You think evil. He has the nerve to tell them that they have evil thoughts, not him. Now, sort of a side note, let us not be quick to think or say something is evil in attempts to condemn potential blasphemers. Now, we are to make judgment. We are to examine fruit. Matthew 7, Jesus actually tells us, not that we shouldn't judge altogether, but he gives us wisdom in how we ought to judge. Right? He says, judge not that you be not judged, but not in the sense of, Do not judge altogether, but be prepared that the judgment that you pronounce will be actually used against you as well. And so what does he warn us to do? Examine our own selves, our own hearts, before we pronounce judgment. To look at the log in our eye before we take out the speck of someone else. But then later in Matthew 7, he does tell us to, um, to make a judgment or discernment when looking at false prophets or false teachers. So, coming back full circle, these men, these scribes, are declaring a judgment prematurely, falsely, quickly, and we cannot find ourselves in that position. We cannot find ourselves to being quick to speak judgment upon other people. Now, you've probably heard people say, You can't judge me. Only God can judge me. Well, in an eternal sense, that's true. But we have to understand as a church, if we are not looking to hold one another accountable and judging one another in the wisdom that God has told us to, we will hurt one another. You know, Paul tells the Corinthians... He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? He means those outside the church. Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? Whoa, Paul, back off, man. He then says, God judges those outside, and then he tells the, uh, the, the church at Corinth to purge the evil person from among you. Now, why is that judgment good? Because that judgment among the church takes sin seriously. It takes false teaching seriously. That's why Paul says judge false teachers and if you see someone who brings a false gospel may they be damned. Galatians 1 We want to take serious sin. The right doctrine and teaching of the church for the sake not just of Ourselves, but for the purity of the church. You know, we get in, we can go down the road of church discipline and all that, but I, I, we don't have time to do that today. But we have to understand that when we think about judgment on a horizontal level, we must hold one another accountable. And if it, if if you see me in sin. Discern it, judge it, and call it out for what it is. Why? Not to condemn me, but to what? To bring me to repentance. And we must do the same for one another. We must do the same for one another. Now when Paul said I, I, this is a long side note. But we also have to understand, as we spoke last week, just because Paul says we don't judge the outsiders, that does not mean that we don't speak and declare the word of the Lord to those outside. Ephesians says what? Expose the works of darkness. Proclaim the words of Jesus. Repent. Why? Because that kingdom is here. God commands all people everywhere to repent. So... Back to Matthew 9. Then Jesus says in verse 5, after they they condemn him as a blasphemer, Jesus responds to them in verse 5. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Now this is real difficult for me as a child, even as a young adult. This phrase threw me off. Big time, uh, Jesus says. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or say, rise and walk. And I remember thinking, your sins are forgiven. It's really easy. Rise and walk. That's really easy. Constantinople. That's not. That's hard to say. And I literally approached this passage just thinking, why is Jesus saying one is harder to say than the other? It literally, they're just words, and they're very simple words. They're all easy to say, but that's not what he meant. Now, hopefully, kids or anyone else as ignorant as I was, for however long that was, I want to help you understand this because for me it was, it was earth shattering when you realize what exactly he meant when one said when he says one is easier to say than the other. Now let me give you an example. Well, let me back up. What he could have said to help me understand it is which is harder to prove, right? Which is harder to prove, your sins are forgiven or you're healed, get up and walk. Now, here's the illustration, kids. Let's say I told you I have an elephant at home, but I also have an elephant in my pocket which one's easier to say? Which one's harder to prove? Well, I can tell you I have an elephant at home, and you probably have to believe me because you can't see my house right now. You cannot, t- but you're a little skeptical. But you know there's no elephant in my pocket, right? So which one's easier to say? Which one's, which one's easier to say to you? There's an elephant at my house. Because you can't prove that there's not. But you can definitely prove there's not one in my pocket. That's what Jesus was saying. It's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because no one can prove it. No one can say, okay, well, show me, the, show me the list, Lord. Come down from heaven. Let me see if this man's sins are forgiven. No one can prove that Jesus uh, is wrong. But they can definitely prove whether or not he heals this man. So it's much easier for a person to say your sins are forgiven than you're healed, get up and walk, cuz what's the guy got to do? He's got to get up and walk. So, now that we've all got that figured out, let's think about this for a second. Your sins are forgiven. He makes this public declaration that no one would dare to do. And remember, they brought him for what? Physical healing. But he said something different. He said something that no one could see. And he had a reason to do it. Why did he say the easier thing? Well, he was setting them up. He was setting them up. He wanted to set up the situation so that he could show those around him that not only could he heal this man, but he could forgive his sins. He wanted to show them what he says in verse 6. Verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. This is the same figure, the son of man that we read about in Daniel 7. One who is given dominion, rule, and authority, and a kingdom that has no end. And then he says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And what did he do? Verse 7, he rose and went home. Do you know what he did, kids? He pulled an elephant out of his pocket. So if he pulled an elephant out of his pocket, do you think he's got one at home? Oh, he probably does. So this man was healed in their presence and he stood up. Jesus did the harder thing to prove, to show that he had also done the other. He had forgiven the man of his sins. Verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God. Now, do you remember what happened to the disciples when they were crossing the sea and Jesus calmed the storm? They were what? Afraid. Different Greek word, though. The disciples at that time had fear of cowardice. They, they had fear that was based in unbelief. And Jesus actually got on to them for it. He rebuked them for their fearfulness, their cowardice, their being afraid. But the fear that's seen here in verse 8 by the crowds when they see this man, not only do they see this man get up and walk, but they realize that the statement of his forgiveness of sins held weight too. And when they see this and they hear this, they fear not in cowardice, but they fear in awe. They fear and marveled. It was a fear that exalts. And what, who did they exalt? Well, they were afraid or marveled and they glorified God. They exalted God when they saw and heard what Jesus had done. And they acknowledged At the end of that verse, they acknowledge the divine at work in the flesh. It says, they glorified God, the crowds glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Now, think about their response then versus us now. Their response is right, but it's not full. It's not complete. Look what they said. They glorified God, who had given such authority to men. They were wit- what they were actually witnessing. And here, you got to hear these words correctly. They were actually witnessing God working as a man, not God working in a man. They didn't see the full picture, but yet they marvelled. And they glorified God. Now I laid out in the beginning. And we went through all those verses. and we, Genesis and 2 Samuel. And Daniel. I laid all of those verses out in the beginning. The biblical reality that Jesus is the Christ. The son of God. The king of an eternal uh, kingdom. And it's confirmed in Matthew 9. In his words and his actions. You have more evidence than these people did. Who saw that very act? You have more proof in your hand today than those people who saw this man get up and walk. They marveled, feared, glorified God. Now the question is do you marvel at him with all the proof that sits in your hands? Are you in such awe of this king? That you glorify God. You glorify God for becoming man. We've sang three hymns already this morning, four if you include Sunday school. Now I know all your lips were moving and your tongue was flapping, but what about your heart? We came in this morning having received for those who are in Christ a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that will crush. All other kingdoms underneath his feet. Can we sit here dull and unmoved, fearing things other than God, marveling at things other than him who has the authority to forgive sin, the authority to calm the winds and the waves, the authority to heal man of anything, the authority to crush Satan underneath his foot? Can you be aware of such a kingdom, such a king, and be stone cold and not stirred in awe and marvel? This is why we need to take another look at the diamond constantly. Why we always need to take a step back and look upon Christ. Look upon Christ. And what does that mean? It means turn... It's like the gospel does not get old. The gospel is an eternal good news with eternal implications. So you can never turn it enough. You can never stop seeing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at it. See it. Don't just set it aside. Remember the gloriousness of what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. Once you were outside this kingdom, Christian. Once you were not a people outside of this everlasting kingdom, a child of wrath. But now you are God's people. Never have you received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, God has delivered you out of the domain of darkness and into and transformed, transferred you into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he did this. He made you a citizen of such a kingdom. In him, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham, the Son of man, the Son of God, and he has given you through him redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Once you are a rebel to this kingdom, an enemy in danger of being broken to pieces by him under this same power and authority. Because we have to understand that Jesus, the Son of Man, has been given authority on earth to forgive sins. But you must also understand that in John 5, 27, the Son of Man has been given authority to execute judgment. So Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, but also the authority to execute judgment. But God has made peace with you by the blood of Christ's cross, which is another reason in itself to marvel and glorify God. The Son of Man did what? Matthew 17. The Son of Man must be delivered over into the hands of men, and they will kill him. The son of man, the one who has authority over uh, forgiveness of sin, the one who has authority over executing judgment, he must be handed over and killed. And Philippians says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for what? so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Because apart from the righteousness of God, you and I have no part in a righteous kingdom. For He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So therefore, let us fear God, glorify Christ, and worship Him in all reverence, because we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And as Jesus is revealing, I'm finishing up, as Jesus is revealing his authority in our text this morning, he has shown himself as the Son of Man, one who has authority to forgive sins on earth. We must finally consider his final revelation to this world. How do we know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins? Not because this man rose and walked, but because he rose walked. And walked. The Son of Man must be delivered over to men and killed, but let's not leave out the rest of that passage. He will be raised on the third day. Jesus declares in John 10 that he not only has the authority to lay down his life for the sheep, but he has the authority to take it up again. You know, as Jesus walked this earth, he made many declarations. He spoke many commands. He says the, he said things like this. Before Abraham was, I am. He told people, whoever hears my words and does them is like a wise man. Whoever hears my words and does not do them is like a fool. He told people to repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom of God is near. All these things in the same light of Matthew 9 were easy to say. But to prove them, what did he do? He did exactly like the paralytic. He rose up and walked. But he walked right out of the grave. So you've got two options this morning. You've got two options. You can be under the authority of the forgiveness of of the son of man or you can be under the authority of his judgment and you will you will stand up and you will walk out under one of those two but praise be to God that he has given you his son that forgiveness and redemption is in is can be found through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, when you trust in Christ and repent of your sins as He calls us to do, not only do you find yourself transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the glorious Son, but now you will rise and walk. You will follow Him. You will do it now and follow Him in holiness and you will do it on the final day When he raises you from the dead. Because he has authority. He has all authority. In heaven and on earth. So what should we do? Go therefore. Go therefore. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is king. And his kingdom is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we we speak of such glorious things. We read of them. But Lord, we ask that you would make them so real in our hearts by your your Spirit. Lord, I pray that this morning, that someone here who has found themselves as subjects to the kingdoms of this world, would submit themselves to the King of Kings. And would do it through repenting of their sins, truly turning from their sins. Not not making some uh, foe profession, but that they would be heartbroken at their sin as their rebellion, as an enemy of you, and they would turn, and they would believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you would place this truth in their heart and And by placing that truth in your heart that they would believe and have life in Jesus Christ. And help us who have been found in Christ, who have been united to Him. Remember that Jesus is our King no matter what is going on around us. Remember that the Son of Man has been given an eternal kingdom. And we give thanks that we find ourselves in this kingdom that will not be shaken. And so therefore, Lord, help us to offer acceptable worship unto you. For you are a God who is an all-consuming fire. You are a God who uh, is, has steadfast love and mercy to a thousand generations. In Christ's name, amen. Let's sing one more song. Let's stand 133 in the black hymnal. All glory be to Christ. All glory to Be to Christ our King.
1: King. Amen. Oh. Amen.
0: Uh, as, we, as we conclude this morning, uh, it's not over. We're just getting started. There's some, I was like, we we're running out of room in the fridge in there. my back was full. Thank you very much. Um, so please stay and eat and fellowship. And let us, uh, let us eat and drink and fellowship to the glory of our Lord Jesus, okay? So please uh, please remain thank you everyone for bringing something. Um, on the back of the hint, on the back of the bulletins is our calendar nothing nothing out of the ordinary. women y'all are your women's fellowship will be this coming Saturday. I believe that's the fifth yes. And so just a reminder the women gather together once every month, the first Saturday of the month uh, still going through seeing and savoring Christ by John Piper right. Um, it's an opportunity. Uh, for fellowship, holding one another up in prayer, time for laughter. I mean, it's, it's time for the ladies to get together and strengthen one another in Christ. Um, men, we do that too, but not in the month of August. <laughs> we're taking our month off, our quarterly month off. Men, uh, our men's meeting is typically on Thursdays at 5:30 in the morning every week, uh, but we do take um, a month off uh, every quarter. In August, we're off. But we'll come back in September. Uh, Members meeting is next Sunday before our evening uh, service. Come back tonight as we are in Psalm 5. Lord willing, finishing up Psalm 5 this evening and have some time in prayer. Uh, With that, I want to read the charge and the benediction that comes out of 1 Peter. And then I'll pray and then we will sing the doxology is a charge and a benediction. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who is the testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the period of our Lord Jesus Christ which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and the only sovereign the King of kings and the Lord of lords who alone has immortality who dwells in the unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, Amen. Amen. Father, as we eat, we ask that you would bless our food. We give thanks that you've provided for us, and as we come together in the name of Christ, as one church, as as uh, one body, we ask that our one Lord would be exalted above all things. Uh, we thank we thank you and we praise you, and as we enjoy our food, we are giving glory to you as our great creator and our great God. And so, Lord, be blessed in us and through us. In
1: Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above.
0: Father, Son,
1: and Holy Ghost. Amen. Alright, now go make the line this
0: way and we'll begin eating. Tables to sit out here so y'all can have some have a seat out here too. Let's go over here.